Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. Welcome to the next Real Speakeasy, part of the True Story FM Entertainment Network. I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hello, Pete Wright. Wait, I'm Pete Wright. On the next Real Speakeasy, we invite a guest from the industry to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. We'd like to welcome our guest to this episode, cinematographer Tammy Riker. Hello, Tammy. Hi, how are you? Legendary Tammy Riker. That was, you undersold Tammy Riker, Andy. <laughs> that, yeah, that's true. Award-winning cinematographer, the the first woman to win the American Cinematographer's Award for, uh, I believe, it was the the premiere episode of Carnival. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Carnival. And um, certainly somebody who's done a lot of uh, TV film work. Um, how did you get your start as a cinematographer? Like, what was the thing that the impetus in your life that said that's what I want to do and and got going with it? Well, I started with a passion for still photography. I mean, I did still photography since, you know, I don't know. I think I got my camera when I was 10 and spent the last two years of high school in the dark room every day. Um, And it was funny. I went to a a school where you had to wear uniforms. We wore kilts. And I spent so much time in the dark (laughs) room. Wiping my hands on my kilt, and it was You're, stiff as a board. I destroyed. And how it looked like that. There was no more piece <laughs> left. <laughs> so I, then I went to NYU film school and thought 
you know, I wanted to study film. I still was doing taking uh, photography classes at the new school, but quickly fell in love with shooting films and started shooting student films. And after I graduated, shot actually a lot of Columbia grad films. And that's where I met Lisa Cholodinko, Maria Magenti, and quite a few. There was a whole collective in that indie New York world, then Tamara Jenkins, Dolly Hall. Some of those early films you did, like The Incredible, Incredibly True Adventures of Two Girls in Love and High Art, uh, those are two of those early films that you did that um, and, you know, had, had a good amount of kind of buzz and, and conversations in the, uh, the indie film world back in the mid-90s that um, certainly um, drew attention. And I'm sure for you, it was a great kind of uh, jumping off point for, for moving into other, other projects, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. High Art uh, definitely sort of what kicked my career into gear. You know, I was shooting a lot of films back in that time period, also the indie film world, every band had a a music video. And that's where I also got my start. I bought uh, a 16 millimeter camera and SR one because I had been working as an assistant professionally just for a little while. And I, I was like, I don't want to keep doing this. I got to, I got to get this <laughs> rolling. So I borrowed money and bought uh, a camera and I would just, you know, I'd be like, you pay me or pay for the camera, either one or pay neither one. (laughs) (laughs) Shot hundreds of music videos all over the world. It was, that was fascinating. It was really fun. I, I, I had a connection in Jamaica and shot a lot of reggae videos. I'd fly down with my camera and uh, shoot all kinds of music videos. It's funny. The, um, I, you know, IMDb, kind of has started getting music videos listed but it still is very thin as far as what's on there the only one that that is on there is the i miss you video for bjork right isn't that i'm shot videos for david bowie i mean so many people and that's the one that ends up or, or lifestyles of the ramones <laughs> yeah right right well you know what's so funny is that like it invariably it doesn't really matter how um how many videos you've done if there's a bjork video for a dp it's going to be in the imdb page for some reason <laughs> bjork is is like catnip for imdb yeah <laughs> i love bjork. that was such an, i have to just tell you a funny story about that shoot so she had been traveling i, I as she always i'm sure does all over and she comes to set and the director was like i don't like what she's wearing and she's like Tammy, why don't you just look at my suitcase? And she opens that. She brings me in the bag. She pops open this suitcase from months of traveling. And she's like, pick something. <laughs> so I'm rifling through her unwashed clothes. Oh, <laughs> the right color t-shirt for her. <laughs> it was so funny. You know, I I'm curious as we as we get into specifically, you know, we're going to be talking about this this movie, uh, uh, John Cassavetes, The Woman Under the Influence, and it's the movie you picked to talk about. And I I'm curious as we sort of lean into that conversation when you began to use camera to influence story and the way story impacts others. I and you know, noticing your work across the ages, there are there are DPs that that shoot the the script. And there are DPs that 
that have an influence on the way the story impacts the viewer. And I I find very much you are the latter from from my experience of watching your work, whether it's TV, videos, whatever. When did when did you realize you had authority in the storytelling process? That would be high art. Yeah. I mean, before then, definitely, you know, on student films and music videos, especially on student films, you're a huge part of it. You are the backbone, the cheerleader, the, you know, you're like the glue because there's not very many, you know, your crew is small. So you're, uh, you're the cheerleader for the director. You're like piecing it all together. So you have an influence, but it was on high art when Lisa and I, that's where I first really studied Women Under the Influence. We watched that movie like 20 times. We were just in love with that film and that style and, and how it can be, the camera work can be in a way so simple, but have such a great impact. You know, it's all handheld and it's just being in the moment and following. I think a lot of times filmmakers get hung up and we have to have dollies and cranes and this and that. And you watch that film and you're like, and you see these pictures from stills from the film and you just see, you know, the cameraman in the corner of the living room or I, mean, I think it's Cass Betty's in the back of the truck with the kids, with his kids. Right, you know? right. right. <laughs> in it. And that's what I love so much is just being in it, you know, and following the action. And there's so much movement in that film, you know. As a comparison point, um, one of the more recent films that you did was One Night in Miami, which also takes place in a space, <laughs> largely. <laughs> and I think it's just very interesting hearing hearing the uh, the way that you describe that and how they captured that with the decision process that you went through is the, how you shot that. And you're like, we're in this space, but I really want to put the camera up on a jib arm and have it so it's kind of floating around as opposed to a handheld option. And I mean, you could certainly have gone that route, but I think that there was something, um, I, I don't know, I guess uh, it, I don't, the way that it it felt like it put me into the space in the floating. It just felt a little more like, um, I don't know, less um, obtrusive. And I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, I felt like I was more part of the conversation as opposed to like, you know, part of the, like the raw emotion of the scene. Was that a, an element that you thought about as far as like how you chose that as opposed to something like handheld? We, we, well, Regina and I, you know, that was not, she didn't want it to be handheld, just the boxing, you know, and, and, and the whole time period and the four of them in such a tight space and then the decision to shoot Alexa 65 which is a very large heavy camera but again I wanted to be in that little space and so we chose in old you know they're older jib arms they've been around forever just a big piece of steel but you float and move with them and it gives the operator the the control you know you're there to to react and and to keep shifting the perspectives. And um, so that, you know, that was, we had these two massive pieces of steel crammed in this little room and it worked. <laughs> it was just a dance and it was, uh, you could hear a pin drop after each take. I mean, everyone was so, and we did, again, like women under the influence, they weren't always cut that way, but we did 10 minute takes because the script had so much dialogue. Yeah, it makes sense. And and like that dinner table scene and Women and the Influence. I mean, it just holds for so long. <laughs> it's fascinating how 
that's something that like we forget as filmmakers. It's why I love to watch this film with directors before we start shooting to just remember how engaging it can be just to hold. Let's uh, let's start talking about that. We are going to talk a little bit about the TV show that that you uh, worked on. That's uh, going to be airing right right around now on Apple TV Plus. Uh, Surface uh, that Gugu Mbatha Raw is starring in, who you also worked with on Beyond the Lights, a fantastic film. Um, but let's let's save that for a little bit later. I want to get into this film, A Woman Under the Influence, and just kind of talk about it a little more. This is for, you know, everybody, there's Mabel for everybody. Mabel! Mabel's not crazy. She's unusual. Tell me what you want me to be, how you want me to be. I can be that. I can be anything. You tell me, Mabel. Mabel's a delicate, sensitive woman. And the reason I'm worried is that uh, you've been acting a little strange. And, uh, I wonder if you've been aware of that or not. This is what I call a really handsome face. That's enough. Okay, come on, let's dance. No, no, no. Look at this muscle. I That's never enough. saw such muscles. I bet he didn't fit in a suit. Maybe. Come on. Yeah. You had your fun, enough. Feed up, Grandma. Get your ass down. This, I mean, it's a challenging film, and, and looking at what John Cassavetes is doing in the way that he's kind of depicting the the uh, the mental illness, or as they would just say, you know, I'm crazy, whatever. Um, it's, I mean, the handheld aspect of the storytelling works exceptionally well for that. The performances, of course, and Cassavetes' own style, all of it really comes together in a very kind of powerful way in this film. And I can see how it's something that you would be drawn to. It's a tough film to to watch, though, and like to go through. I, uh, you know, I, I imagine it's one that you, I, for me, I feel like I need a breather afterward. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know what? It was funny watching it again. I watched it again last night, and I thought, wow, as I get older and being a mom, it's heavier and heavier for me. I think like when I was 25, I was like, wow, this is great. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not really feeling her pain. You're as much as you get older and you have more experience and you have your own children and suddenly like, it's just ah, at the end. And then the, just the cycle of it's just going to keep going on. I personally just, you feel for her so much more. <laughs> it, feel for her and for him and for the mom. And I mean, everybody in, yes. in here. And I think, you know, when you, when I look at this film, I, I, it, it's hard to characterize my feelings about it because I love the film and I don't enjoy the story. I it it's hard. It's it's hard enough to watch that when I'm watching it, I'm watching it because I marvel at the performative aspects of this film, that this other human being can take me to such a place through just performance and just raw emotion, both uh, for for Peter Falk too, as as the blue collar dad, just trying to exist in this universe of such emotional and and sort of behavioral turmoil, uh, that struggle is extraordinary, and that they capture it with such long 
lenses is amazing to me, right? Because it it's it, normally I'm looking at these scenes and I'm thinking I'm I'm sort of a part of it, right? I'm you know the, the one night in Miami example is is fantastic because I feel when I watch that movie like I'm in there with those guys, right? I'm I'm in the room wit- bearing witness, and this I feel like I'm surveying the family like i am i am outside like outside a window staring past a shoulder and it's it, it is you know gets to that point i was trying to to get to earlier using the camera to to as an agent in the storytelling this movie nails it just out of the park uh, and it's just watching it. i mean so when they're having the their fights and oh when she slaps the, you know when he slaps her in front of the children but also the in and out of focus and they're just you know, people are falling in and out. And sometimes it's so beautiful. She's actually very soft in the background and she's the one talking, you know, until it slowly racks in. You just feel like they were just fly on the wall living in the chaos of it all in that small house. Doesn't seem like very big. At all. Right, right. Dining room, bedroom choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I, that didn't that didn't make sense uh, un, until the closing shot, the credits shot, when the world just sort of resolves back to normal and they start pulling the furniture around. Yes. <laughs> you start making sense of how the how the scene is blocked. What is it about that that film? Like I, I'm I'm so curious uh, the the reaction that you have with directors when you introduce the film as a way to describe sort of the way you see film. I mean, I, I would say it's very interesting because at first, maybe they're hesitant, like, I don't, we're not going to do long takes like this, you know, but you're like explaining that it's just, just that the story can play and that, that you can just follow characters and you get, and it becomes so alive, you know, as opposed to, like I said, the, the, the dolly track and the over overs and characters can speak and you don't have to see their face. We know they're in the room, you know, we can hold. You know, you you feel in this film, I don't know, but you feel like, you know, they didn't cover everybody's line. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And that, you know, and that's another thing, just show, you know, you don't have to cover everybody's line. We get really caught up in, you know, did everybody get their wide, medium, tight? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I get a sense from conversations now about the film that, you know, they did a lot of rehearsal. It wasn't, it wasn't improv. Um, they, they actually really had kind of worked it all out, but the way that the camera moves and everything, it really feels, um, very, uh, it feels improvised. It feels like the camera person is just trying to find the shot and, and everything. And I don't know, I guess that really struck me when it was the two of them in this stairwell and they're kind of silhouetted and, uh, you know, and he's talking to her and it's just, uh, but it, you're, we just get, end up getting so close that it almost is like they're blended together. It's like, who am I looking at? And the way that it was, um, it just kind of like, um, you get this sense of these two characters are really kind of the same. You know, it's it's this husband wife being that they are. But it, I don't know, just the way that that came together, it was. I mean, it was really beautiful in how it kind of portrayed a relationship and the struggles of a relationship, and kind of this whole idea that you know we all have a little bit of madness in us. And that was something I found so interesting in the film is the the portrayal of. Um, madness and the decision of who's mad and who's not, or who is who's suffering from some form of mental illness and who's not, and uh, the way that we kind of latch onto her as the person who's really kind of dealing with this sort of stuff, and the decision to send her off to this uh, institution um, when 
you kind of read that everybody has these things. And I think so much of that for me comes partly from the title, A Woman Under the Influence. I, I mean, because, you know, before I had ever seen this film, I always thought it was about a woman who was suffering through alcoholism. It's just it's, substance abuse. Right. And then I when I watched it, I'm like, oh, OK. And then I was like, well, it's an interesting title. I guess it's really about like, you know, all of these influences that she is taking on and she's trying to figure out what do you want me to be? And she says that she's like, I don't know who to be. I found that to be such an interesting portrayal of this woman trying to figure herself out and, 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 but through the lens of the other people and, and how that to them ended up making it seem like she was mad. Right. Right. Through, yeah. Her parents and her children and right. Yeah. Her husband and, and her husband's friends when they come over. Right. And all of their influence on him, you know, that she's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I was surprised Surprised, not surprised uh, to hear that that Cassavetes had originally uh, written this as a play Be, uh, because uh, apparently Gina Rollins wanted to to be in something about exactly these pressures on modern women at the time and then couldn't possibly imagine doing eight shows a week. And so they pivoted and decided to, to go for it as a film. That is, you know... One of the things I think is so so remarkable about how the film is presented to us is that at no point do I get a sense of proscenium in the house, right? At no point does it ever feel like a play. It feels like I'm living in this house with these people. Do you ever get a sense of that when you look at these adaptations from play to screen? Oh, definitely. I mean, Mammy was, yeah, and that's so daunting when you first read the script. It was, I mean, you know, pages and pages and pages of straight dialogue without a single movement but again i don't i don't ever get a sense of proscenium in that in in one night in miami not not once does it feel like i'm on i'm i'm watching an adaptation what goes into your head when you're when you're looking at how to shoot it i mean a lot of that was working you know kim did a great job of bringing you inside and outside the hotel sure when we were shooting that was really important us to keep that sense that there was a world outside you know so that it didn't start to feel like a play. We, it was funny when we were uh, starting prep, I said, it, would it be important for me to, should I watch the play? Because they had, you know, recordings of it. And they were like, not nah, really, but you can. <laughs> I watched it and you're like, no, there's nothing. It's so nothing different, you know. Okay. Um, so uh, speaking of directors, and I mean, like you had worked with a number of different directors, but looking at, at Cassavetes as a director, like when you look at something that Cassavetes has done, um, what do you, I mean, he, and he's also acted, I mean, he's a very prolific uh, storyteller in, in all the different uh, fields. But when you look at something like this, what do you feel like as the director he's bringing to the table and, and kind of um, putting into this story for you? Oh, I think orchestrating it all. You just imagine how intense that must have been. You know, you, I almost imagine him like, you know, sometimes when the camera was so, you know, nudging the cameraman or something just to keep the chaos going or forcing them like you're going to stand in the stairwell. And this <laughs> yeah. is how it's going to be, you know, <laughs> you feel his hand in it all. And I think in the script, too. And that's something that I, I think that I am fairly weak on my Cassavetes um, film knowledge. I need to watch more of Cassavetes films. Um, but I find when I do watch them, I enjoy that they have such an intimate, connected 
feel with the characters. And that's something that I, I really get out of watching his projects, uh, particularly with Jenna Rollins and Peter Falk, two people that obviously he worked with a number of times. Um, let's talk a little bit more about the performances in the film. Um, what, when you watch these two as a husband and wife, uh, like what are your, what are you taking away from, from them as, as like, what are the, the performances and, and what are the actors giving? Well, I, I mean, this time around, I was just, because usually I'm so in love with Gina Rowland that <laughs> I <just> shifted <laughs> to just Peter Fox's incredible performance, you know? Yeah. I think in your first couple viewings, you're so in awe of her and her character and her tics and her mannerisms and and how stunningly beautiful she is. And um, But this time I was really focusing on Peter Falk and it's just incredible his acting and those slaps that just still come out of nowhere just so jarring and feels so violent it, it's funny you would look at the, like the title of the film a woman under the influence it's like on second viewing you realize everyone's under the influence like he doesn't <laughs> know how to support her and this family anymore right you just feel him running out of just sort of institutional gas yes oh and when he's in the truck giving the kids oh. beers and you're <laughs> oh god the way he's like i gotta go to the beach and he's just dr- like dragging them to the beach there's no joy oh, and, the, and the principal like watching them being loaded <laughs> in the back of the truck Right. Right. It's just awful. It's like everyone in this movie is feels put upon by the weight of life. Right. And and I I, it is when he's dragging the mother into bed. Get in the bed. Get in. You know, (laughs) he was just like this, like look on her face, like the whole family's crazy. And that, yeah. that comes across, you know, something that I um, we used to we would do periodically on the show that I think is interesting is we would call it first shot, last shot, where you look at like the first and last shots of the film. It's always a little tricky, but I do think it's interesting as to like how a filmmaker decides this is how I want to start the film and this is how I want to end the film. I think that it's I, I think there's something obviously they have to make that decision in the context of the story at some point. And for this film, you know, Cassavetes kind of starts with Nick at work. We see him and all of his his crewmates like um, I don't know they're they're laying the the pipes in the waterway, doing some sort of work as to what they do. And you hear it starts off with some opera, and then it kind of turns into some some of the kind of the piano music. And so we get a sense of Nick's like external world. And I I, I thought it was interesting that we start externally, and then at the end of the film, we end with the two of them, Nick and Mabel, as their putting their room together we've already kind of mentioned that but it's like they're they've they've gone through the horrific dinner (laughs) where they had to boot everyone and all that and um and they're starting to kind of like they've they've reconciled and they're kind of putting everything together and i love especially the moment where nick kind of shuts the doors on us on the camera it's outside shuts the 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 curtains and we're kind of seeing the last few shots of them um, separated from us as they're kind of reconnecting and everything. But I found that to be such an interesting way to kind of start in the film. Did you have any thoughts on that as to like the structure of that? No, but when you were talking, I was just thinking about the role of that bed in the film. I mean, it's so incredible. Like, I mean, she sleeps with the guy from the bar in the bed and the whole family's (laughs) in the bed. That bed is just such a, presence because it's in the dining room. <laughs> yeah, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid it. And it, it, it's just such an anchor in their life. And it's downstairs. Normally, you know, your bed would be upstairs. You wouldn't, it would take a reason to be in that, you know, here it was constantly in the 
I think structurally, Andy, you, you, the, the, the sort of chaos of the opening scene, uh, there's water everywhere. You, you, you can feel, uh, Falk's just feeling just awful about himself that he had made this promise that he was going to be at home with his wife, that he was going to just, but now he can't because, you know, he's the foreman of a construction crew and the world does not wait for dates. Uh, and so he's, he's dealing with all of it. It's just chaos. It's absolute chaos. And then at the end, they come, they're coming down the stairs. They're leading into that final experience of them getting ready for bed. And she turns and in the, the, a voice of clarity that we have not heard from her the entire movie from opening frame of her. She says, you know, I don't even know what all this started. Like, <laughs> She she has this moment of awareness that that I felt like I was being slapped, like, of course, of course, when they're alone together and all of the outside influences uh, have been peeled away and everyone's finally in bed, that she is able to breathe again and use a voice that is more natural to him and remind us for the first time why he keeps coming back to her, why their love endures. That is, I will now get off my soapbox about the the moment <laughs> of joy at the end of this movie. But I found it, I found that, that you know, you talk about first shot, last shot, those constraints, uh, incredibly moving. I also, like in that moment also at the end there, you also feel like, you wonder what, you know, throughout the film, you're wondering what she was like when they first met, you know, yeah. you get that feeling in that moment that, you know, it always toggled back and forth. Right. A little extreme for a while. <laughs> <laughs> right. A little bit. Well, and I, I like that you get the sense that, and I think this is something that feels Cassavetes where things aren't necessarily like this isn't just a just a happy ending of a movie like it doesn't just end i felt like when we got to that end it will continue like there is more of the story and they will just kind of continue on and you know these sorts of things may happen again but if we learned anything from the process of going through this with these two characters is they have a genuine love for each other and are going to figure it out and that's something that i i felt really powerful in the film is that sense of, um, you know, I guess I would say sense of hope in the film, you know? It's funny. I told my wife what this was about. And I said, no, the end is hopeful. The end is hopeful. You'll get there. It'll pay off. She said, screw you. I'm not watching this movie. <laughs> it is yeah. a long film. It is definitely a long it film. It is a long film, yeah. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to see that, I mean, Pete, you talked about the whole idea of it being a play. And then, and Rollins was just like, I don't think I can perform that you know, that many times a week, it's a lot to go through. And so they shifted to to the film and it was, and I guess this is, you know, telling and, you know, frustrating with the way that the world works, but they had a really difficult time finding funding um, as uh, somebody, one of the producers or the, the people at a studio that Cassavetes talked to, he was trying to get it. And he, the, the person said, quote, no one wants to see a crazy middle-aged dame, um, and I just think that's just so sad when you hear things like that, because it's just like, come on, people, come on, people. Um, so he had to mortgage his house, borrow a bunch of money. And Peter Falk actually loved the script so much that he put uh, $500,000 into the project. And then Cassavetes was uh, like a filmmaker in residence at the AFI and used a bunch of the um, the students there to kind of come and help out on the crew 
uh, pro bono. And so it was one of these, I mean, it felt, it, it, everything sounds so independent. And, you know, I always love that when people come together to do something that they're passionate about. And, uh, but then of course the whole thing fell to the distribution. And again, no one wanted to distribute the film. And what was interesting is after it played at the New York Film Festival, uh, he ended up essentially starting the four wall process this it sounds like this was one of the first films where he was actually booking it in these art house theaters going around and talking with the audiences and stuff and and that's kind of how the film um played out in the world which i i found to be uh, very interesting in the process of of kind of doing some of your own independent films have you kind of um felt some of that pain tammy as you've kind of gone through oh absolutely yeah <laughs> And then it, but then it's so incredible when they become, you know, like high art and two girls in love, Dolly Hall were just playing at the Beverly, the new Beverly. They had a retrospective back to back. Oh, nice. It was so exciting to see all these young, mostly women, young women come (laughs) and just, they see it for the first time or they'd seen it on, you know, video. And, but those, those two films especially were, Oh, just such a labor of love. I mean, two girls in love was $50,000 budget, you know, wow, yeah. my art was 500,000. Wow. And that was, uh, I, both of those were film. And both of those. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and then something like pieces of April. And that was $150,000 shot on those Sony. Remember Gary Winnick started that whole um, independent movie. He made those collectives. So they were all shot on the Sony PD 150, literally held in the palm of your hand. Sure. And, and, and that film still plays like so many people will tell me, Oh, I love pieces of April. We watch it every Thanksgiving. You know? <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> and when I tell young people today, I'm like, so when Katie Holmes was walking towards me, I had to, I had to, stop the autofocus you know like it was that was the focus it was literally like shooting you know like with your phone that's how simplistic (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic films are so fun you know of course you could still get that camera used and it only has a three-star rating on amazon tammy it's not a great (laughs) camera Well, it's all in how the how the cinematographer uses it, right? That's right. That's right. That's what it's all about. Going back to this film, as far as kind of this story here, um, another element that I found interesting is that in the process of kind of like the trying to get the the release, uh, you know, screening it and everything, um, Richard Dreyfus actually uh, he was um, on a, a TV talk show with Peter Falk, and they actually started talking about the movie. And I didn't know this, but Richard Dreyfuss uh, deals with bipolar uh, issues. And I guess he found it to be very powerful. And he said it was the most incredible, disturbing, scary, brilliant, dark, sad, depressing movie. And said, I went crazy. I went home and vomited. (laughs) Which I I, I think that when you watch a film like this, you can see how this reaction could come about. Because, it. I mean, it really does put you into the heads of these these characters. Uh, It was very powerful. But that's something else that helped kind of draw audiences to to the movie. And I I think it makes for uh, an interesting... Uh, draw to find people or to get people to want to come see this. Everyone wants to see what Dreyfus, what will make Dreyfus throw up. Although I get the feeling that he could throw up anytime he wants. (laughs) It's a tiny. He is 
waiting for her walk, waiting for the bus. It's just so beautiful and so well shot and simple. She's walking up and down the street waiting for that school bus in that, in her manic kind of panic walk and that long lens. And it just, it was brilliant. I thought you could just watch it forever. Her like pace. There were, uh, was this the same scene where she's talking, she's asking strangers for the time? Yes, yeah. yes. Yes. I'm waiting for my kids. Yeah. Frenetic. Don't you have a damn watch? Like yelling at people. It makes me wonder, <laughs> and you know. Dusk and, yeah. and then they're the only kids on the bus when they find yeah. <laughs> it, it does make me wonder. It feels so naturally, Cassavetti's like, I'm, I'm assuming that he was just across the street and those people were just people, right? That he, that she was just asking strangers, strangers. It certainly felt like that like they they had a you know a camera hidden in a in a a box or hidden somewhere and it was just amazing i love those shots where they hide a camera and so good world coming around you those two women were actually friends of of jenna's so well (laughs) they play the uh extraordinary stranger part very very well (laughs) you know i would add one of the things you said earlier tammy is just how how long you know, Cassavetti's waits for these shots. And she's like, like that dinner table shot, how long it is. The other thing, he operates at the other end of the spectrum too. And, and the way he handles cutting is extraordinary. That doctor scene, when they're trying to sedate her and she keeps, you know, raising her fists and punching and all that. It's so fantastic. The final scene, the final shot of that scene, the doctor says, I have a paper here that says, and he cuts. And, that is another scene that feels like, you know, somebody just slammed on the brakes and the seatbelts locked up for me because, of course, I know how they're going to finish that sentence. Right. Of course, they've built up to that perfectly, but they don't let us see it. And it, it is just it's a magical bit of treachery, like visual treachery uh, that that just it, it just works. Well, and just I mean, speaking of those scenes, I think both of these scenes are a, a, a powerful examples of just what. Uh, the the actors are bringing to the table. I mean, watching her go through both, and they're interesting contrasts in scenes because in in the manic kind of like panic that she has when she's waiting for her kids on the street, um, she just, there's like this sense of um, real like confusion and like what is going on with the world? Where's the bus? And like, she's, it's it almost is like, you know, there's this sense that she, you know, thinks like, did my kids get on the wrong bus? Where are they? Like, she is so panicked about it. Um, and she's just waiting for the regular bus to arrive. And it's just, it's interesting the way that plays in comparison to that scene that you were just talking about, Pete, where she's, um, she is actively kind of being like attacked and like held down so that they can, uh, take her away and sedate her and stuff. Right. And it's, cornered. Yeah. yeah, she's very much cornered and it's, it's horrific. And actually that scene plays really interesting the way that, uh, I loved Peter Falk and the kids in that scene. How yeah. he cannot get those kids to leave the mom, and he keeps like you know grabbing the kids and taking them to their room, and they keep they running keep back to back. her. And, <laughs> but the way that he had to like figure it out and come around to the different way to approach the scene with the kids and have her come up. And it's just like everything. It was, it was masterful the way that that story unfolded through that and the way that the actors, and this is something that I think Cassavetes really knows how to do is to allow a scene to play where the actors go through so many ranges over the course of it. It was, it was a wild ride for sure. Can we talk about, can we talk about new stuff? Yeah. Do we, do we get to talk about new stuff? I'm very excited for the new stuff, Tammy. So, yeah. So, so 
what was uh, so? Yeah, we're going to shift for a, a little bit now. We're going to talk what Tammy is working on or what you just worked on. And it's actually going to start airing, as I said, on Apple TV Plus. Around the time this airs, it is the show Surface. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about this? Yeah. So uh, Surface uh, stars Gugu Mabathra, who I worked with in Beyond the Lights. And she actually recommended me. And uh, I had a Zoom interview with Sam Miller, and um, who I just, I loved, I May Destroy You. So I was so excited to meet him. <laughs> And he is just uh, so creative and so really wanted this to to be visually different and handheld. And, you know, even though it was an elevated, very styly world they lived in, he really wanted it to uh, try to push it to the extremes for to capture what she was feeling. She's a woman who has lost a significant part of her memory due to an accident and so now she's back in the world but is not quite sure who to trust trust her best friend her husband she's not sure if the story that they're telling her she doesn't remember anything so she's putting the pieces together by what they tell her what her life was like and her life was very fancy and beautiful and beautiful clothes and beautiful home and country house she doesn't quite feel that that she's that person so we we used the uh, swing and shift lenses a lot to play with the focus and so that to blur the edges in the same way that she was seeing the world very blurry. Just for our listeners, can you describe what the swing and shift lens is and like how like what sort of image do you end up getting from it? So the lens is actually on a bellows, like it was for a still camera. We started using them. I don't we used to use them all the time in music videos. Matt Mahern really made it famous in all of his um, Teen Spirit uh, Nirvana videos. <laughs> so you have the ability to put uh, half of the frame, a quarter of the frame out of focus by literally swinging and shifting the billows on the lens. So you can selectively choose uh, what you want to be in focus. So back then, when we used them on videos, we did not have, it was extremely difficult to pull focus because the operator had to pull focus. So until recently, they've, uh, amazing camera systems have devised a way that they can pull on their Prestons, their remote focus, because now these days we stare at a monitor. We don't pull off the lens. These stares at a monitor and pulls focus. So, uh, that was really a game changer for using it more in narrative. Um, it's still very tricky because when a character moves, obviously it's, it's amazing for still photography or if it's just one locked off setup and you're like, I want the whole bottom to be out of focus. Okay. But now when I walk closer to you, suddenly my whole face is out of focus. So, but now having the ability to pull focus and keep changing which part of the lens is out of focus has, has it's still, it's still tricky. There was still definitely moments where you'd play back the tape. You're like, well, her mouth was completely. (laughs) 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 You can see someone, it's hard to see someone talking for too long with their mouth. It's just completely Completely out of focus. Yeah. Suddenly it's not art anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You're focusing on that. I'll tell you that that using that swing shift lens was uh, these the the first two episodes is extraordinary. And and the way it captures, you know, uh, for if you 
can't place where you might have seen this in use. Consider, you know, when you see a shot where things look, where a cityscape looks miniaturized, right? For those who are listening, that's another sort of trait when you use this, this lens uh, on a landscape, you can, you know, create that miniature look. It's really great for, you know, I use it for architectural photography, allows you to shoot really tall buildings and make sure everything's in focus. It's really great. But a big, but, a big film example would be social network of the boat race, uh, the boat race in that was done little tiny boats yeah uh, right. <laughs> which is amazing the the range of uh use of that lens in these first two episodes is extraordinary tammy i kept like i was forehead smacking myself i would kept thinking she is so bold to be playing with this i cannot imagine that just and that the... was sam every time i would because you know you think at any moment someone's going to be like enough of this yeah right <laughs> like came down from apple that <laughs> <laughs> Well, but, you know, in context of the story, and this is why I was like, of course, they chose the this method to to be a part of this story about this woman who is dealing with uh, this amnesia and not being able to remember everything prior to this accident. I'm like, th- it was such a like a smart way to inform us of like this kind of this closed view of the world that she has, like she just can't. There's nothing out there. And I found that to be so interesting. And there are some shots that just are really striking in the way that, like, she feels so separated from everything, the way that you were using that lens. I mean, it was really uh, exciting to see. Yeah, We just, I mean, the more, we would usually shoot, you know, two cameras, one with it. We use the um, tribes, the Blackwing 7s, these new lenses. They're old glass and refurbished, so they pull focus easily and, and... and there were such a beautiful match to that. But every time you would, Sam and I would be looking at the monitor, we would only be watching the swing and shift. We'd be like, it's amazing. <laughs> 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 this is mesmerizing, especially when we're reading the exteriors of San Francisco. Oh, so uh, luscious. We rented a double-decker bus for a day to do like so many of without actors to do and it just miniaturized the city we were just like wow you know especially as the sun was setting and you're on those hills yeah it could bring something in the background so close to you that it looked like a miniature set (laughs) yeah it's it really is perfect for and and for the set of the story uh is it it just it it makes San Francisco come alive in a way that I've never seen quite that way. Like you see these these movies that or these movies and shows that transform cities that I am quite familiar with and yeah. and make it something new. And I think that's that's one of the things that you're able to do here. Yeah, those lenses in Chinatown were so cool. So okay. cool. So but cool. We also used a lot for when she's seeing the her when she's waking up in the hospital and uh her her husband is out there. Um, we both love the diving bell, butterfly and the diving bell. What is it? Called? Diving, diving bell, bell, the butterfly. butterfly. Yeah, That's, yeah. Yeah. So um, we, I, you know, read that Julian Schnabel used his own eyeglasses. So I had the prop department go and get me all these different eyeglasses. So prescription. So I found the ones with the biggest ones and I would put those in front of the lens and just be <laughs> when she was waking up. And when she was on the gurney, I was running with the gurney, twisting. <laughs> and again, I kept looking back at Sam. I'm like, <laughs> waiting again for someone to be like, enough of it. <laughs> enough. Apple said, stop. <laughs> 
Nobody it, did. It's it's fantastic. I I actually I I love a, a comment on uh, reflecting on on working with Apple. This feels very much like you're already in the MCU, right? You've you've got your you've got your cloak and dagger credit, which was a great episode, uh, and. Now you're you're working for Apple. It's a brave new world. These streaming services. What's your experience working on on a show like this? Well, I mean, Apple was really fantastic. They were very, you know, they they care very much about the visuals and and to be interesting and strong and you know, it all the Apple shows are. They're very visual, you know. So that was exciting. It's got to be nice, uh, you know, being in that space where you're working with a, a director who's exciting to collaborate and play with these tools. I mean, we, we talk about this on the show quite a bit. It's like when filmmakers take advantage of the full range of tools that they have to tell their story in a, in a creative way that kind of enhances what we're watching. It's very exciting. And we don't always see that. But those moments where we do, and I, I think it speaks to what we have just been talking about with Cassavetes and a woman under the, under the influence and this and like and how um, you and the director and Apple as kind of the people who are behind it allowed it all to kind of come together to create something that um, really stands out. And uh, it's pretty exciting to see. Yeah, After this, like, what are you working on now? Do you have something else that uh, that's uh, in the pipes? Yeah, I'm starting the morning show, season three. Have you done them? You haven't done any no. of the morning show yet. No. Oh, I'm very excited to see you on the morning show. <laughs> can I? Can you tell me a little bit about how it works? Like, how many? So you just did two episodes. You did the pilot and episode two of Surface, and uh, do how does that work in terms of you defining the look of the show, and then how does that work with you coming on a show like the morning show that already has a strong sort of it's visual? Really the first time I've come on to a show. Really? Yeah. Is it like, I mean, do you have, because uh, I mean, a show typically has like the Bible and this is like kind of the characters and all this. Is there also something for you as far as like, this is typically like the types of lenses we like to use with the show and this is the look and all of that that, or are you allowed to kind of say, well, can I play around with some things as I come into this season? Yeah, they want you to play around. They want to, yeah. Okay. I mean, certain things have to stay the same. That's awesome. So it is interesting. It'll be the first time that I come on to something that is already established. I'll tell you, uh, Tammy, we think you're extraordinary. Thank you so much oh, thank for you. hanging out with us. Uh, you have an amazing eye and just the stuff that you capture and the projects you've worked on. It's all just very exciting and such interesting projects. So so keep it up. Do you have a website or any place where people can uh, like look at the stuff that you've done? Or uh, I don't know, do you use social media that you post uh, yeah, photos or anything? My uh, website is on uh, DDA, DDA Talent. Gotcha. Okay. We will put that in the show notes. And uh, I guess that's everything. So, uh, Tammy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. We had a wonderful conversation. Uh, for everybody else out there, we hope you like the show. And we will see you next time here in the Speakeasy. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. 
Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page. That is a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you to tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies. Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool. Sexiest animated characters. Andy, what is this? We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service. Just use the discount code NEXTREEL or visit thenextreel.com slash letterboxd to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I'm an audiobook guy all the way. For those looking to listen to the books behind the films that we talk about here on Movies We Like, not to mention all the other podcasts in the Next Real family, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. There are so many great adaptations from movies we like available in audio form. Early on, we covered Casino Royale with director Matthew Gratzner. You went through all of the 007 books on Audible, right? I did indeed. What a series. We also covered Room with legendary Dee Wallace and Never Let Me Go with costume designer Alana Morshead. We chatted about Fat City with cinematographer Sam Levy and Silver Linings Playbook with the great composer Harry Gregson Williams. 101 Dalmatians and Bambi. Apocalypse Now, There Will Be Blood, The Thin Red Line. There's so many great adaptations with so many great guests, and you can get all these as audiobooks on Audible, along with thousands of other great reads. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but it does take a lot of time. We have already dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they are so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened when you said you didn't like them. So now, we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please, consider an Audible subscription to help support movies we like and the Next Reels family of podcasts. I've been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I've read hundreds of books through it. Couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it, too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out. And you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free trial and get your first free audiobook at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. <laughs> 